Make sure you check out our online store where we work with our graphic designer to create stunning garment and product designs that feature a wide variety of aircraft types such as British fighters, World War II aircraft, American bombers, Russian fighters and much more. You can pick your favourite designs and personalise any items within our Redbubble store that range from clothing right the way through to stationery. All of our designs feature our logo so you can show your support for the channel while getting a quality product. You can head to our website aircrewinterview.tv and click store or go to redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash AC interview. Thank you and enjoy. And yeah. you mentioned obviously coming back from them kind of missions. How do you and the crew wind down? Like, you know, when you come back getting shot at, you're just like, right, I'm going back to my tent, I've got my book, or what do you do? Yeah, well, so we all kind of live in the same accommodation, so usually there's a bit of banter in between crews, yeah. generally, if someone's been shot at. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, I mean, most of the time it's just either, you know, off to the gym, that kind of decompression, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and actually, when you've been shot at, mostly it is banter. I mean, there's a lot of times where, you know, you have the odd moment of someone, you'd be like, are you all right? And most of the time it's, yeah, yeah, that was close. But nine times out of ten it's a bit of banter the harder thing to kind of decompress from was when we were doing merch which was the flying ambulance because in the kinetic days of, of afghan or operic you know from about 06 07 onwards for about three or four years that was like scenes from mash you know we were picking routinely on a day-to-day -day basis picking up you know in like casualties that had already died on the battlefield torsos you know limbs bits of bodies and it was you know we would come back and their engineers would have to wash the blood off the floor of the aircraft after some of the sorties to the point where then we got a rubberized floor fitted like matting that went up the entire aircraft and it yeah, essentially stopped bodily fluids going into the aircraft um but coming back from a hard day on, on mert you know my worst day i think i had 14 shots in one day so that was you know just relentless it was you know we get a nine liner the way the mert worked was a nine liner would come in so the troop gets injured or whatever happens out up the up the, the helman valley and it could be anything from you know uh, a vehicle incident which in the early days most of the time is like a you know a vehicle collision or something like that um or someone being injured you know building building hesco bastion walls or falling from something it was very kind of normal accidents and then when, when the theatre got tasty, it was, you know, troops in contacts with gunshot head um, wounds to the head or torso bodies, lots of IDs. And Afghan was really bad for IDs. So, you know, you go and pick up people who've been, you know, obviously stood on something or have been contacted in that way. So um, the injuries reflected that, you know, gunshot wounds to the head are not a nice thing to come over on a stretcher. And equally, you know, people who've been in an ID strike, you know, are generally not in a good way when they, they come on the back of the aircraft. So, um, but at one point... Uh, it was said that you, Afghanistan was the only place in the world you could survive a non-survivable injury. And that is the testament to the amazing medics that we had out there. Yeah. You know, people were, I've seen people come over the ramp, casualties come over the ramp who had already died and got brought back to life on the back of the aircraft. So, I mean, that's, it says a lot about how skillful the British medics were at the time. And a lot of those lessons got brought back to the UK and, and are still being used here in the UK today. So... Yeah, but it was a huge honour to be part of that, I have to say, although it was probably the, I always call it the, the best of times and the worst of times, that, because you saw some horrendous stuff, but it was also an absolute privilege to be part of it. So yeah, that, that sounds amazing, Liz, and obviously, uh, I think you mentioned Mert was one of your favourite roles, or one of the most, uh, better, the best thing you've done on the Chinook, is this true? Yeah, Mert was, um, yeah, absolutely, the, the most purposeful thing that the whole Chinook fleet, I think, did, you know, 
the other things we did in Afghan, there was uh, Mark, you would hold the duty. Originally, in the early days, you would hold it for a week at a time. But whenever, say, it started to really ramp up, the heads of sheds realized that that was just too detrimental in people's mental health. So it became a 24-on, 24-off duty. Um, and then in amongst that, when you weren't flying on Mark, you were doing routine tasking. So again, that's just moving people and troops and ammunition and water around the theater. Um, or deliberate ops. And deliberate ops was where you would essentially three Chinooks would get filled up with troops. You know, it could be the Paris, Marines or whatever battle group were in theatre at the time. And we would go and assault a known Taliban stronghold. Uh, they'd all jump out the back, first light, middle of the night, whenever the the, uh, the guys who were planning the mission had decided and essentially go and, and hunt for baddies. <laughs> and then we'd go and pick them up either later on that day or, you know, a week later. So that's how the deliberate ops worked. But certainly Mert was the... I mean, deliberate ops were usually quite high octane for about 20 minutes of your day. And it was usually at first light, which meant getting up at like two o'clock in the morning to crew in and get everything mission prepped. So um, and by breakfast, all your excitement and adrenaline was done for the day. <laughs> so um, so they were good, but it was all like sort of very flash to bang pretty quickly. But Mert was a lot of sitting around. And then as soon as the bat phone went and we got that nine liner through, it was just spread to the aircraft and um get airborne as fast as you could it was a 15 minute response time during the day and 30 minute response time at night but it never took us that long to get airborne you know we didn't sit around and go we've got another 10 minutes yet let's let's not get airborne it was just as soon as the bat phone went we would sprint out of the aircraft i think the fastest i ever get airborne was something like four and a half five minutes something like that oh, that's quick. um yeah and it, we'd, we'd already prep everything on the aircraft so in the morning we'd go out we'd do a walk around You'd have all your flying kit there ready to go, like all the buckles undone, almost like being a fireman. You'd have everything prepped and ready to go. Yeah. So you could literally just run out, helmet on, and you'd end up doing concurrent checks. So, you know, the pilot would literally just be spinning up and the navigator would be getting more information through in the radio. Or the, one of the crewmen is loading the troops or loading the medics and helping them prep needles or whatever else they needed to prep for whatever the casualties were. Um, so it was like a really, it was absolute chaos, but really well oiled chaos, you know, really <laughs> everyone knew exactly what they were doing. So, yeah. yeah. But then trying to come back from the other side of that, you know, you then you go and get the casualty, drop them off at uh, Nightingale Hospital, uh, HLS, which is at Bastion. Go and land on, shut down and, and back to watching Game of Thrones or <laughs> whatever the box wow. set at the time was. So... And that would happen throughout the day. So you get the spike of adrenaline, you know, flying under a hail of bullets. And then, you know, an hour later, you're sat there watching something on TV again. And uh, and it was, but that would happen routinely. So I think a lot of our crew really struggled, you know, looking back at those times now to try and kind of put your brain back to normal jogging because we're so used to having that massive spike of adrenaline and then, you know, nothing. So. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And have you ever actually met um, after, you know, you've picked, uh, you know, troops on the ground up, uh, injured? Uh, have they ever contacted you? Have you ever met in person, spoke or anything like that? So we kind of made a point of not chasing up a lot of the, right. the really injured soldiers because we kind of knew it would be detrimental to our mental health to start yeah. to follow up those stories and personalise who the, who they were. Okay. Um, but we all the odd time because the medics lived in the next tent along to us so the odd time we just you know knock on their door maybe the day later and go how, how'd that guy get on or you yeah. know how you know and, and certainly we didn't just pick up troops we picked up afghans as well afghan children afghan locals um and one story that really springs to mind is we picked up an afghan girl who was only about six years old years and years ago and she had swallowed a spring out of a mattress 
so we went to pick her up on a, a merch out and uh, when the dust, we obviously landed on dust everywhere and the dust cloud cleared and there's a little girl stood there holding her uncle's hand, it turned out. So he he spoke a little bit of English. Mm-hmm. So we got them on board the aircraft and I was at the ramp and uh, I remember looking at this little girl and she was petrified, absolutely petrified. And I can understand why. I mean, suddenly a big, massive helicopter's landed on in her village. We've got weapons fitted, you know, we've got guns fitted and there's not a single Afghan out there that doesn't know what weapons do. You know, they've all seen it destroy their country. So this poor little girl is now getting on the back of his helicopter, essentially be taken away for all she (laughs) knows. And she can't speak because the spring was lodged in her throat and she couldn't speak. So she was really distressed. But we got her back to Bastion. And then the next day, we as a crew went up to see how she was because they'd removed the spring and she was able to speak again. But she didn't understand any English. So we took up, we'd get our crew rations. So we took up a couple of tins of Coke and a couple of bags of Haribo. And, you know, as soon as we walked in the hospital, she was still really scared, you know, looked like a bunny in the headlights. But as soon as we pulled out the Coca and the Haribo, oh, there was all smiles. Yeah, it's like international language, of, you it know, Coca Cola. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but that was a really nice story, you know, just being able to follow that up. Um, but back here in the UK, now that the the war's over, yeah, there's. I worked whenever I came out of the RAF. I actually worked for a charity called Airability, who fly disabled veterans. And there's been a few people that have come to fly with Airability who either have been picked up by Chinooks or picked up by me. Uh, and it's been brilliant to be able to see awesome. that story go full circle and those guys go off to get their pilot's license, some of them. So, yeah, that's been that's been quite good. Yeah, and just to like wrap up the Afghan bit, uh, I know, um, obviously, in terms of mental health, did it affect you, you know, coming from Afghanistan and going back to the UK? Uh, because I know you talk about it in your book or you've mentioned it online. But uh, can you tell us about this, Liz? Yeah, so um, mental health wise, I thought I was okay. I um, I left the Air Force in 2019. I actually started to injure my neck quite badly just from wearing helmet MBGs, which are the night vision goggles. Um, and whenever you're wearing those, then you get a counterbalance to put in the back of your helmet. So you're yeah. essentially tripling your head weight. <laughs> and as, as a crewman, you don't stand straight all the time. You know, you're hanging out under the aircraft and you're rotating your head. So you're essentially just asking for trouble. Uh, and my neck packed up and eventually I left in 2019 because I couldn't fly anymore. And they offered me a desk job, but it was like, no, I joined the Air Force to fly. So I don't want a desk job. I, did, I tried it for three months, but I kept looking out the window at Chinooks taking off and went, no, just, I'm off. Can't believe, yeah. And I was okay. I remember thinking, how have I got out of this? You know, not just alive, but how have I got out of this in, in one piece? And and 2019 seemingly was all life was good. You know, it took me a while to find my feet again with like being a civvy. But airability that I mentioned a minute ago, they were really helpful. And, you know, they kind of give me that new sense of purpose. And then we got locked down in 2020. So suddenly I was on my own with all like nothing but my own thoughts. And a lot of the coping mechanisms that I'd used, for a lot of the trauma that we've seen in Afghanistan, such as going to the gym, socializing with friends, keeping busy and burying your head in the sand, which we're all guilty of. Mm-hmm. It was all gone. It was just me on my own in my apartment. Couldn't really go to the gym or go running anymore. Obviously, everything was locked down. And as 2020 progressed, I started to come unraveled very, very quickly, it, it turns out. And I remember one night suffering, well, I was suffering from insomnia really badly. I'm playing through a lot of stuff in my head from Afghanistan and I ended up looking through my logbook and looking up some of the merch sites I'd been on and looking up just as we spoke about a moment ago, look at the back catalogue of those soldiers and that had died and, you know, did they have fiancés, did they have kids, you know, that kind of thing and and personalising them, which was very dangerous behaviour and, I mean, the red flags were all flashing at this point, you know, I was like, 
I'm not in a good way. But I didn't tell anyone. I didn't say a single thing because I just didn't want to burden anyone. Everyone was going through stuff in lockdown. I didn't want to be the problem child. And then in August 2020, just woke up one day and just wanted my brain to stop doing this, like stop stop talking, just quieten it. So I ended up that day, spent the entire day planning um, to take my own life. And that night, uh, took a huge overdose and, and tried to end my life. Thankfully, um, I, I survived. I was um, I didn't know how I'd been picked up. I came busy, um, took a huge overdose um, of 95 amitriptyline, which is a horrible drug, um, and woke up two days later in intensive care in Basingstoke, where I live, uh, with a, an incubation tube down to my throat uh, on life support. And uh, had no idea how I got there. You know, don't remember anything from after taking the pills. And it was only when I eventually got out of hospital a couple of days later, I was reunited with my phone, which had been left back in my apartment when it turns out the ambulance crew had picked me up. And I'd called the Samaritans at 10 to 1 and was on the phone for 13 seconds. And then I called 911 at midnight or at one o'clock in the morning, sorry, and was on the phone then for about 15 minutes. So they must have, that's where I think the ambulance came in. Um, I was very lucky. I lived next to the hospital and they said that if I hadn't lived next to the hospital, I probably wouldn't have made it. So, you know, I was really, really lucky. Um, But I remember leaving hospital and feeling quite euphoric, thinking, well, you know, that's rock bottom. It can only get better from here on in. You know, you can't get much worse than wanting to end your life. And the truth is it wasn't, you know, that was just the lid coming off. And then I had to spend the next two years essentially putting all those files that I'd thrown everywhere that day back into my brain and processing them. Because it's really important to think when you have something like that is not to just scoop up the damage and put it back in there. It's to like read every file and kind of acknowledge that the trauma that I'd seen in Afghanistan, it was trauma. And it's okay to feel sad about what I'd seen. and It's okay to have those emotions. And then and then filed them back in the back of the brain. And that's hopefully well this day. But it was a long journey. I was very lucky that I was a veteran because the mental health system, even to this day, is quite, you know, it's just underfunded, really. And a lot of civilians are on really long waiting lists. But I came out of hospital on the Saturday and was straight in with combat stress on the Monday. And I had PTSD resolutions, uh, give me some counselling and then help the heroes, give me some counselling and and with the help of a lot of my old Air Force mates and, and family, managed to kind of get back on a level playing field. So it was um it was a hard eighteen months, but I'm uh, I'm through through it now, which is which is good. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, thank you very much for sharing that, Liz. Obviously, I know that's a tough time and it's tough to talk about as well. But uh, I mean, people going through it as well. Uh, would you say it stops, or is it for you yourself? You don't have to answer this, obviously. Is it still ongoing? Is it manageable? No, and I'm really glad you asked that, actually, because there are a lot of people who suffer from PTSD. I know loads of people, certainly from Odium and imagine it, life. Um, and it will it will haunt them forever. You know, some of their demons that they will never go away. I've been very lucky in that I feel like it was a chapter of my life. <clears throat> I processed it. And it is just that. It's a chapter. It's not my new label. And it's not something I intend to carry around like an anchor for the rest of my life, you know. I very much feel like I had PTSD, I processed it, and now I'm moving on. And I think that's a really important thing for anyone who's kind of had it or is going through it, is that the darkness doesn't have to stay with you forever. You know, there is light at the end of the tunnel, and you actually do come out of the tunnel. You can leave the tunnel behind. So I think that's a really important message, that you it doesn't have to be your new label, that you have PTSD forever. You can actually process it and move on. Now, that's notwithstanding that every 
every form of trauma is different and there are some people who who may not get through it but certainly i've been quite lucky in that respect yeah. Well, yeah, again, thanks for sharing that. And I'm sure like Liz will give us some um, helpful websites, which I'll link in the description below. But mm. uh, to wrap up the Chinook part before we get into something a bit more lighthearted here, Liz, uh, did you enjoy <laughs> yeah. your time on the Chinook overall? Oh, absolutely. I The day I saw that magazine and saw that guy hanging out the side of the helicopter on the rope, <laughs> I looked at that and thought, that is the best job ever. I want to do it. And I still look at Chinooks now and see crewmen. And I run to the window every time I see one. I still live really close to camp. And uh, every time I see one go past the house, I've still run to the window like a five-year-old and look out. And uh, I still think it's the best job on the planet. Throughout my career, a lot of people always said, do you not want to transfer Liz and be a pilot and cross over? And I never did. I always said, well, why would I want to do that? I have got the best seat in the house. You know, yeah. sitting on the ramp at the end of a tasking day in Afghanistan, watching the sun slip away at the end of the day. And you're just watching it disappear like a gold coin and your feet are dangling over the edge and it's about nice temperature. It's about 40 degrees and you just sat there. It's brilliant. You know, it doesn't get much better than that. So, yeah, still think it's the best job ever. Well, this is from, I, can't, you, I guess you answered it, but it's from Joe Kunzler. Uh, why did you remain a crew chief and not be a pilot? I guess you just kind of answered yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and if you don't have a call sign, you can't get as much trouble. If you have a call <laughs> sign, you can get in a lot of trouble very quickly. Whereas if you don't have a call sign, you don't get in trouble so much. Exactly. And I've got one who wants to stay anonymous here, but uh, did you ever get one of them big orange hands from uh, the <laughs> Chinook uh, display teams? Yes, I have got one of those. I, I can't remember where I got it from. I got it about three years ago. I actually left the, the Air Force by this point, but one of the crew gave me it at one of the displays. Um, I think they, they came and helped out with our ability. We have an air show every year um, and they gave me it for that. So I have got one. Uh, somewhere in the house lurking around so i think most crewmen on chinooks have got one somewhere stashed away <laughs> and one more here um did you ever get a call sign or is that just for americans no so the pilot will have a call sign um which will essentially you know cover the mission so for example um the mert call sign was tricky seven three so as soon as you hear tricky seven three on the radio everybody else in the whole theater who was on a radio stopped talking so that we had free airwaves essentially to talk to the troops on the ground and talk back to about the hq so yeah tricky seven three was um was that the the mert call sign and then we had ultimate two one and ultimate two two was generally the tasking so if you heard but every single aircraft had a different call sign as i'm sure you know so the uh the apaches with the uglies so, you know, we used to hear the uglies come up on on, the, on frequency, but um, individually, no, we didn't. We didn't. But we all had our crew badges. So um, certainly I referred it in the book quite a bit. I was uh, I had got nicknamed Gloria Stitz years and years ago as a bit of a joke one day. And all of us, our crew sometimes like to have stupid badges. And I got given Gloria Stitz and uh, I got my badge made up in black and pink. Uh, so it was pink writing on it saying Gloria Stitz. Brilliant. And uh, so, yeah, we all, we all had our, our joking name badges. Brilliant stuff. And um, yeah, Liz, let's talk about your new book, uh, Chinook Crew Chick. How did this come about? And yeah, where did the idea come from? And did you enjoy writing the book? Yeah, so the the book was never written to be published. Um, ah. I've obviously spoken about when my, uh, I was going through my 18 months of sort of putting my mental health back together after the overdose. Um, and as part of that, I started writing poetry. I found poetry quite cathartic and I started writing poems and you know, sharing them on Facebook as you do. And, and people started to really receive them quite well. And, and a lot, there were obviously a lot about, 
you know, my time in Afghanistan and most of them are about Mert. Um, and they started to get really good re reception from people. So I started to just write almost like a journal of like day one in the Air Force and how did it all begin. And uh, about three weeks later, by myself with the bare bones of a book, and I was out walking with a civilian friend one day and said, look, don't laugh, but I think I've written a book. And she was like, that's brilliant. Email it to me. So I emailed her what was the original copy and she read it and said, Liz, this is really good. You should send it to some publishers and see if it can get published. So I did, not expecting anything. And then about three weeks later, Pen and Swords emailed me and said, we want to publish your book. So um, I had to make it a little bit bigger because it was only 35,000 words at the time. And they said it needs to be bigger. And I was like, that is not a problem. This is literally just like Liz's day one download <laughs> of stuff. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I worked in each chapter. It only took me another like sort of couple of weeks to finish it. So essentially the book was written in three weeks. And um, and then, yeah, a year later, it's pub it got published in September. Um, so it was really, actually writing the book was really cathartic. And then the process of actually getting published has been really, really fun. Yeah, it's been really, really good fun. So, yeah, and if you're but, on uh, social it, media, you know it's been like it's been a big hit. Uh, like I've if you're on Twitter, uh, are you on Instagram? I, I've seen you on. Uh, I am Twitter. on Instagram. Yeah, I'm on Instagram as Chinook Krujic, and I'm on uh, Twitter. No, I only recently joined Twitter after the book came out. I've never been on Twitter in my life before. <laughs> and I'm, I'm Chinook on Twitter, but um, it has. It's been really well received. I think it's because. Unlike a lot of military books, it's not a book about war. It's a book about me and how I felt about war. And it's also a book about, I mean, certainly the, the latter chapters are all about, you know, my mental health and putting that back together. And hopefully, you know, a lot of people resonate with that. And then obviously there's an element of hope in there. So I really hope that the first half of the book is inspirational for anyone who wants to join the forces, especially young girls or young lads, just to kind of show them it can be such a brilliant career um, it's also good insight to what crewmen did because there's not been many crewmen who have written books. You know, a lot of the books have been from pilots. So it's yeah. nice to see what essentially the what else goes on in the back of the helicopter. But yeah, the latter half is that, you know, that kind of inspirational kind of, you know, coming out the, the back end of a very dark place. Um, but yeah, it became a, a bestseller on, on Amazon, which is just crazy. <laughs> so it was on, uh, it's just not in hardback at the minute. Um, and then essentially, I think when they sell so many hardbacks, they eventually put it into paperback. Um, I've been uh, asked to do an audiobook, and most of my mates who have read it all read it in my accent, which is quite funny. And the <laughs> idea of someone sitting in bed reading my That's book yeah. with my little accent is quite amusing. Yeah. So um, I am going to record an audiobook, and I'm going to record the book myself. So that will be coming out hopefully sometime next year. And yeah, it's just been put into e-version e or like Kindle version at some yeah. point. Pen and sort of working on that at the minute. Um, and I've been quite lucky. I've done a couple of events around the UK. I've done some um, book festivals. And I did one in Yeovil the first month that the book was out. And I was sat there with loads of authors and there was loads of, you know, Sheila Hancock, who's quite famous. And oh, yeah. Tom Carriage was there. And all these people who are authors and they're like, oh, and someone said, oh, like, you know, you're an author as well. And I was thinking, I'm not an author. I'm still a crewman. I don't, I have this imposter syndrome. I still don't very much think of myself as an author. Um, and it all still feels a little bit weird. But yeah, it's been quite, it's been quite a nice couple of months. It's been quite a good journey. Great stuff. And we'll link all the descriptions in below there for you folks. But a couple of uh, lighthearted questions to wrap up this one, Liz. Do you have any hobbies? So I'm a bit of a gym bunny. I used to go. I used to train a lot when I was in the Air Force, which is hilarious because before I joined, I really couldn't run the length of myself. I was very unfit. Um, but then when you join up, you kind of get no option than to be fit. You know, you have to keep up. And uh, and certainly on, as a crew, 
in Afghanistan. I didn't want to be the one that kept everyone, if we ever went down behind enemy lines, I didn't want to be the one that everyone was waiting for. So I made it kind of my mission and my my statement throughout my Air Force time to be peak, peak fitness. So I used to do a lot of triathlons and Ironman triathlons and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, just getting back into that now. So the main main hobby is, you know, cycling, running, swimming, that kind of thing. Brilliant stuff. I probably know the answer to this one. Favourite aircraft you've flown in? Oh, it's the Chinook. Uh, every time. Um, I wouldn't even go near anything that's fast and pointy. I'm quite vocal with my, my hatred of anything fast and pointy. I mean, it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a helicopter thing in the forces. Yeah. Most of us don't really get on with them. And I mean, it's all banter at the end of the yeah, day. Of course, but um, yeah, Chinook through and through. One you'd like to fly in, either past or present? Ooh. Uh, I think... I mean, a lot of the, the aircraft that kind of preceded the Chinook in the Air Force, I was very lucky. I uh, got involved with historic helicopter fleet last year yeah. and qualified as a Wessex crewman. So oh. that was the first helicopter that I ever saw at an air show when I was five, six years old back in Northern Ireland. Um, you know, as a child pointing at the helicopter, that was the one that I remember because it's such a distinctive shape as well. A bit like that the Chinook, is. which has got a really distinctive silhouette. The Wessex is, also looks like a big bumblebee, essentially. <laughs> um, so, yeah, probably the Wessex. I'm, I've been quite lucky to fly on it and I'd, I'd like to keep doing that if I can. Brilliant stuff. So just to wrap up, if you, you kind of mentioned it before. Just where can we find you online and where can we find the book online, Liz? So I'm on Instagram as uh, Chinook Crew Chick. So please come along, say hello. I always like to kind of interact with people um, and certainly hear what people have thought of the book. Um, and on Twitter, it's at Chinny Chick on there as well. Um, and same, you know, it's nice to a lot of people have been connecting, having read the book now and been through their own mental health struggles. A lot of people have been sending some just really lovely messages of support, but also sharing their story. So if anyone does want to connect, it's always nice to meet new people. Well, that's brilliant, Liz. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show and sharing your story. Uh, it's been absolutely brilliant. So uh, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Nice to meet you.